We are starting a series uh, today on biblical church membership. And I just want to put all the cards out on the table to start with. Uh, The next three weeks are going to have these three messages in them. We're going to look at, yes, it is in there. The biblical membership is actually in the Bible. We're going to look at the benefits to biblical membership, not like in a club or uh, a membership that you have someplace else, but as what are the benefits? Why would an individual want to have their membership with a local church? And why would a local church desire for people to, to be recognized as members as that local body of believers. So we're going to look at that as well. And then we're going to look at the purpose of biblical membership. And you may say, why? Why another series on the church? It seems like that's all we've talked about in 2022 is the church. Nine weeks of the, about the DNA of the church, about those unique characteristics that make the church the church, regardless of where it is in time, uh, where it is in location, who the pastor is, what the ministries are, what the worship style is. We had nine characteristics that made the, make a church a church. And then we looked at how the church worship for four weeks. And then we did take a little bit of a break uh, to talk about our risen Savior and to celebrate Him during Easter. But then a couple of weeks ago, Scott goes and preaches two weeks on this dualistic mission of the church that she has in missions and in discipleship. And now we're going to go down a three-week road looking at church membership. Why? Well, because the church, church, is God's vehicle for the Great Commission. When he said, go and make disciples, he was talking to his church. The church has been chosen by God to be his, 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 his instruments of salvation, to take the message of his son, Jesus Christ, across the globe, across all of his creation, to share that message, that salvation message to everybody. And we, it's easy for us to say, well, this is what the church should be without ever consulting the handbook for the church. It's easy for us to say what the church should look like and how the church should operate without ever really talking to or listening to the architect who created everything. You see, one of the times in the Old Testament where we see God as ticked off about as God can get ticked off is when King Manasseh was the king over the southern tribe of Judah. Right? They had already broken into two separate kingdoms, and Israel is already off in captivity, and Judah is hanging out down here, and Manasseh was not a godly king at all. He, he, he built high places back where high places had been torn down, which were places of, of worship to, to fake gods, to false gods. He, 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 made, he sacrificed his son with fire, in fire. He, he, he built temples to fake gods in the temple of the God. He did all of these, these nasty things and led the people of Israel, the people of Judah, further and further away from God. And God had had enough. And the thing that, that, that God said that made him mad is because they had imitated the detestable practices of the nations around them. They wanted to be more like the people around them than what God created them to be. I never want that to be said about this local church. That's why we are focusing so much this year on who we are as a body of believers. Last week, uh, I made a statement uh, talking about uh, our discipleship and our, and, our, and our journey about start with eternity in mind and work backwards or teach with the end in mind. 
And that's what we're going to do in this series. So we're actually going to do this series with the last message first today. And that's what is the purpose of biblical membership. And then I hope that because we address this today, that then we're able to more clearly see the purpose and the importance between the next two Sundays. The purpose of the church in one word is holiness. The purpose of biblical church membership is to disciple and encourage each other toward holiness. So why would you preach a message on holiness to kick off a a series on church membership? And I'm glad that you asked about that because one day, because one day, the master of the word is going to call on the herald of the word and want an accounting. And I'm going to have to stand before him and give a report. One day, the master of the word is going to want an accounting from the herald of the word. That's me, that's you, and we're going to have to stand in front of our judge and give an account. And I want to be able to stand in, my, in front of my judge, in front of my God, and to be able to give an accounting. And then I want to hear those such sweet words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I want to be able to have heard those words multiple times in front of me and echoing multiple times behind me as member after member of this local body goes and stands before their judge and hears those same words, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is what I want to hear from my master and that is what I want you to hear from your master as well. I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Why do we preach a sermon on holiness? Because I care much more about my approval before God than I do the acceptance of the world around me. And church, I care much, much more about your holiness than your happiness. And I pray today that you leave today with this unsettling feeling especially if you are foreign to this word holiness, not just in what you know about it, but how you see it being lived out in your life. Holiness is so, so, so important to your walk. That's why we are focusing so much on the church, because the church is a vehicle to help us in holiness. Scripture makes much of holiness. You can go to the Old Testament and you can go to the Leviticus chapter 1144. You can try to write down several of the scriptures today. We're going to land in one and stay there for a bit, but I'm going to throw several others out at you. If you want them and you can't write them down, just say the word and my sermon notes are yours, right? With all the pretty collars to highlight stuff so that I can focus on them. They're all yours. But 1144 in Leviticus, God said, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Uh, Leviticus 20, verse 7 says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And we could stay in Leviticus the rest of the morning and read holy scripture after holy scripture after holy scripture. But let's go to Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Go over to the New Testament, and Paul writes in Second and First Thessalonians 4, 7, For the God has not called you to impurity, but to holiness. 
Uh, you can go, we can go to Romans 8.4. We could go to Colossians 1.22. We could go to Hebrews chapter 10.10, and we could read holy, 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 holy all over the place. I want to encourage you uh, to, to, to continue to read about this. I encourage you to, to get today to go to 2 Peter and just to read it. You can fit it in in between lunch and your nap. It won't take you very long to read. It's only three chapters. But in those three chapters, there are over 20 motivations and encouragements about why we should be pursuing holiness in our walk as Christians. Right? Listen, listen to some of these. Right? And these are all from 2 Peter. We pursue holiness because sin never delivers on its promises. We, we work hard at holiness in order to make our calling sure so that we will not fail. We pursue holiness so that we will not be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pursue holiness so we will not be blind, having forgotten that we were cleansed from our former, former sins. We pursue holiness because those who wander into sensuality are condemned and will be destroyed. We're serious about holiness because we believe God knows how to judge the wicked and save the righteous. We turn from God ungodliness because those who revel in sin are ugly blots and blemishes, irrational animals, unsteady souls, and accursed children. Second Peter chapter 2. We pursue holiness so that we can have more of God. We pursue holiness because we are ready, already free from the corruption that is in the world, so that we may be richly provided for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Because those who live in their sin again are like those returning to, uh, returning to the mire and returning to vomit. Because those who do not know the Lord, we, we focus on holiness because we don't know when the Lord will return. Because we may hasten the coming of God. Because we, may, we are waiting for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness will dwell forever. We focus on holiness so that Christ may be glorified both now and in the day of eternity. And that's just a handful of those things in 2 Peter that tell us why we should chase after being holy. But the place that I want us to dig in our heels is actually in 1 Peter, the first letter that Peter wrote to churches that are in now in modern-day Turkey. And in the first chapter of this letter, in verse number 15, there are these eerie words, eerie because of the magnitude of them. And, Paul, and Peter is writing something that had already been written down in Leviticus. In verse number 15, be holy for I am holy. Men, as we study through Ephesians chapter 5 and we come to that section of scripture that says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, I tell you every time we read that, that that is a tall order that we will never completely and perfectly fulfill until God calls us home. This is that same type of scripture. This is a tall order. And this is something that I have wrestled with for a long, long time, and it wasn't until Shelby and I were sitting in a room in Louisville, Kentucky with 12,000 of our closest friends that the speaker said something that just made it click for me. And I want to share some of that with you this morning. But before we read and dig into this scripture, I'd like to do a quick walk through our, how redemption works. Some of you have heard this time and time and time again. It's something that we should always, could always benefit from, from hearing again. 
Some of this may be for the first time uh, that, that you hear this. But that time, that moment, that day, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved. We are saved from the consequences of our sin. We are saved from an eternity in hell. We call this moment justification. We are saved from the consequences of our sin. Past, present, future, we're saved. That is something that we should applaud. That is something that we should be thankful for. That is something that we should celebrate. But this is not the end. It's only the beginning. Because on this day of justification, right, what happens is that we live and we live and we live until that day when either God calls us home individually or he returns to claim his bride and we are ushered into the very presence of God. And on that day, we call that big word we, our day of glorification. There, we were freed from the consequences of our sin. Here, we are freed, we are saved from the very presence of sin. Now, as a dad, and I shared this with you before, and you guys may get tired of hearing about it, but as a dad and as a grandpa, I like this environment that we're looking forward to. Bring it now. I want my children and my grandchildren living in this environment. I want you living in this environment where not only are we free from the consequences of sin, sin no longer exists because we are glorified. We are made perfect. Unfortunately, on one level, there's a lot of distance between there and here. Some of us have been Christians for decades, some of us for a few weeks. We do not know when this day is coming. Right? We have celebrated and we have mourned those who have, who have left us to enter into this spot in the last weeks and months. Our time of glorification may be soon, it may be still decades in the future. Jesus may come back between right now and lunchtime. He may wait another 2,000 years to come back. We don't know when this point will be. Justification, glorification. But man, there's a lot of time. There's a space in between this. So, so what do we call this? Well, if you're a believer, this, this space between uh, justification and glorification, that's the Christian walk. That's the, the, the Christian life. And in this time... Right? We, we are spent being shaped and being molded. And if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is working on you to transform you into a more and more perfect image of your Savior. Yes, we have a big name for this too. It's called sanctification. But it's the journey of becoming more and more like our Redeemer, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We celebrate this day over here. We look forward to this. We have grandparents who, who have big smiles on their face because their grandchildren put their faith. We celebrate this day over here. But church, I want, to, I want you to listen to me for a second. We have to keep just, justification in the right frame of mind. Okay? Great day. Something greater is coming. John Piper, in a recent sermon... He said this, and I think this is beautiful and powerful. 
He said justification by faith is a means, and by means, he means it's a way, it's a path, it's an avenue. So justification by faith is a path to something more and greater. Propitiation from the wrath of God uh, is a means to something more and greater. Forgiveness of sins uh, is a means of something more and greater. Escape from hell is a means to something more and greater. Redemption from slavery is a means to something more and greater. And ultimately and finally, that more and greater is God himself. Continuing Piper's quote, he reads from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. To see God, to know God, to have God as a companion, to be irradiated by the glory of God, to finally in some suitable measure reflect God, to become a, a, at last a fitting echo of the excellency of God. And this last part, I just need you to picture this as we read it together. So brothers and sisters, walking into heaven is a million times greater than walking out of hell. There's no comparing the pleasure of walking out of prison than walking into the arms of your wife after 30 years. I want you to think about that statement for a while. Walking into heaven a million times greater than walking out of hell. I have to agree with, <laughs> with, with, with Piper and with, with Scripture that there is going to be nothing like finally walking in to the presence of God. So, that brings us back to the importance of this Christian life. That time between these two milestones, uh, we have the, the fancy name of sanctification that becomes a journey of holiness for us, becoming more and more like our Savior. The Christian life is a journey of holiness. It's vitally important, so important that the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, strive for peace. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. And now, if Hebrews 12, 14 wasn't weighty enough, let's jump over back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because the implications of the statement in Peter are heavy as well. And to get a full picture of what he's talking about, let's back up just a little bit and start reading in verse number 13 of chapter 1. There, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How 
do we do this? How do we live this holy life? Because our God commands it of us because He is holy. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, which again, if you read it this afternoon, you'll get this, and we'll actually get to it in a few minutes, tells us that His divine power has granted to us everything we need for life and for holiness. We're not left out there and told to do something and then not given the tools and the resources to do it. We have been given all that we need to live a life of holiness. Looking at the verses we just read gives us some indication of how to do that. Verse 17, if you call on him who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear. Patsy, this isn't the type of fear that has you curled up in the fetal position in the corner, sucking your thumb because you're afraid of everything that's going on around you. No, this is a fear of God that includes worship and reverence and awe and all that he is. And you conduct yourself because he is that and so much more. Conduct yourself with fear. In verse number 14, uh, Peter tells us, as obedient children, uh, um, Jerry Bridges, who is an author and a church leader who passed away a few years ago, has this amazing book called Holiness uh, Day by Day. I strongly recommend that to you. In that, he says that obedience is the pathway to holiness. Being obedient to God in, in, in small things is a pathway to obedience. He tells us also in verse 14 to do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's a clue, guys. He's talking about former, things that were in the past. Ignorance, when you were in the dark, when you didn't know better. In verse 15, be holy. In verse 17, if you call on him as father, if you're able to call God father because Jesus has ransomed you 17 also says, conduct yourself with fear. And then Peter reminds us of something that's very important. In verse 18, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You were ransomed. You were set free. The the cord was severed. No longer are you tethered to the past. Your former ignorance or what your forefathers brought into you. You are cut from that. You have been ransomed. You have been divided. You have been separated. You have been freed from it. Quit acting like you owe it something. Quit acting like it still has control over you. You have been cut loose from that. And you were cut loose by that, by something precious. Not something that you and I count as precious, gold or silver, but something that God counts as precious, the blood of God his only son. And this wasn't some divine afterthought that, oh, what am I going to do now? No. It says before the foundation of the world, this was the plan. Peter says, realize that you are ransomed from your feudal ways. Quit acting like you're beholden to them any longer. Your new way of holy living has been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Peter says something similar to this uh, along the same train of thought and and logic over in chapter 2. In verse number 20, he says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Peter's basically saying it's your fault. You deserved it. You messed up. Deal with the consequences. But if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He died so that you are free. Be holy. He ransomed you from your former ignorance. Be holy. He separated you from everything that your forefathers tried to condemn you with. Be holy. Christ suffered and died so that you might follow in his steps. Christ died for you. He bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. In this we see, church, the sin-conquering work of Jesus on the cross and the sin-killing work of every individual Christian as they follow under the power of the Holy Spirit. The only sin that you can conquer, the only sin that you can kill, is a forgiven sin. And Jesus died on a cross for that sin. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 again says that God's divine power has given us everything we need to kill sin and to live in holiness. The blood of Jesus and His Spirit in us. Does our striving for holiness save us? No. So how do these two things work together? Does our quest for holiness, does our final analysis on the day of our glorification when we stand before our judge, that has have any bearing on our personal, does our personal holiness have any bearing on that? The Bible says a lot about that. First, he says something like this in Isaiah chapter 64, that even our best efforts, even the best among us, that even the best among us who has everything figured out seemingly, that our righteous deeds are like filthy garments in the light of God's holy law. Even the best of us is not worth it. Even the best we have to offer is not worthy. Our best works are stained and polluted with imperfection of sin. Second, Scripture repeatedly refers to this obedience and righteousness of Christ on our behalf. Uh, Romans 5.19, For just as through disobedience of one man many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man Jesus the many will be made righteous. Jesus did that for us. 1 Peter 3.18 again, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Scripture speaks both of this holiness that we have in Christ because of Christ and a holiness that we are to strive after. And you can look all throughout this and see these, uh, all throughout Scripture and see these two aspects of holiness and how they complement one another. For our salvation is a salvation to holiness. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God did not call us to be impure. That's what's God, God doing for us, God doing in us, but to live a holy life, our pursuit of holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
Right? That's what Jesus is doing for us and called to be holy. That is our part in pursuing holiness. Peter and the writer of Hebrews are telling us to take seriously the necessity of personal holiness in our lives. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives at salvation, He comes to make us holy in our practices, in the way we live, and in the way that we love. If it is not there, if there's not in us at least a yearning in our hearts to live a holy life, pleasing to God, we need to seriously question whether our faith in Christ is genuine. It's true that the desire for our holiness may only be a spark at the beginning, but during this journey of sanctification, during our Christian walk, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by obediently surrendering to opportunities and challenges and the will and the commands of God, we are being transformed into a more holy picture of Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of our salvation, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is that we be holy and blameless in God's sight. To continue to live in sin as a Christian is to go contrary to God's very purpose of our salvation. So holiness then is not a condition for salvation. That would be salvation by works. But it is a part of the salvation that is received by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said, Titus chapter 2, for the grace that God brings, for the, for the grace of God that brings salvation, what God is doing for us, has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What God did for us, what we are to do in response to what he has done for us. The same grace that brings salvation to us teaches us to renounce ungodly living. We talk until we are blue or red in the face about the grace that frees. Church, we need to talk more and more to the same level at least about the grace that conquers because we have been told that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We need to talk about the grace that leads us to conquering sin. We need to better understand the sin-conquering, the sin-bearing work of Christ on the cross and the sin-killing work of the Christian in his Christian life. Holiness, then, is required for fellowship with our Lord. David asked in Psalm 15, Lord, who may dwell with you in your sanctuary? Lord, who may live on your holy hill? And in essence, God's reply back to David was he who leads a holy life. God doesn't require a perfect, sinless life to have fellowship with him, but he does require that we be serious about holiness, that we grieve over sin in our lives instead of justifying it, and that we earnestly pursue holiness as a way of life. When God speaks to us about sin, we need to take heed, we need to take action. To fail to deal with sin is to risk incurring the discipline of God. I want to show you a picture of how we tend to picture sin in our Western culture. Right? This is it. I have a dog. Definitely not a dog person. My dog does not fit in a purse. My dog pulls us uh, on sleds. But this is how we picture sin. 
when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, instead of dying to sin, instead of running from sin, instead of killing sin, instead of remembering we've been ransomed and freed from sin, we carry it around like it's a cute little dog in a purse. The sin that Jesus conquered, the sin that Je- that's no longer ours, the sin that we're told to run from, we towed around. And isn't it cute? We make jest when we fall because of temptation to sin. And we say something like, or we say something and we get mad at somebody when they call us out on our sin and we say something, well, that's just me. That's just how God made me. That's just what I, that's just what I deal with. It's, it's, just, it's just the way I am. No! It's a lie. Every verse that we've read so far says that when God came, He ransomed us. He delivered us from this past ignorance, <coughs> from our past from the past of our forefathers. Jesus gave his life to conquer that sin. Now give yours to kill it. Stop rationalizing our sin and start putting it to death by pursuing holiness with the help of the Holy Spirit at all costs. 1 Peter 1.15, be holy for I am holiness. Holiness is a necessary assurance of our salvation. That's what James says in, in James uh, chapter 1 when he talks about faith and works, how faith without works is no faith at all. It's dead. And that's what he is saying here. The only evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. And it looks different there than it does here. And it looks different here than it does there. It's in ever-increasing degrees of holiness through obedience to Him. The only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. John said that everyone who is within, that is in Jesus, has the hope of eternal life. It purifies himself as Christ is pure. Paul said in Romans 8.14, those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If we have nothing to do with holiness, if we know nothing of holiness, if we pay no attention to holiness, we may flatter ourselves into believing that we are Christians, but we're not living with the Holy Spirit inside of us at all. So this morning, church, I want you to wrestle with three questions this week. I want, the first question is, is, is there evidence of holiness in your life? As Scott said, this is self-examination time, not cross-examination time. You're focusing on you, not the other people in your house, not the other people in your row, not those who rode to church with you this morning, focus on you. Is there evidence of holiness in your life? Think back. If you've been a Christian for a decade, is the Tony Foreman of today a little more holier looking than the Tony Foreman of 10 years ago? Ever increasing degrees of glory. Is there evidence of glory in your life? If there is not, evaluate. The second question, do I desire and chase after holiness? Is it even on my radar? Is this something that I am trying to attain? Is this something that I, that I am moving toward? Do I even have a desire to be a little more like my Savior? If not, it's time to evaluate. The third question, do I grieve over my lack of, lack of holiness and honestly seek the help of God to be holy? Am I calling out to it? Does my sin still drive me to my knees in shame 
and regret? Or do I take my sin and put it in my designer purse and carry it around for everybody to see and to point at and to make much over? It's not those who profess to know Christ who will enter heaven, but only those who live, whose lives are holy. It's not Tony Foreman's words. Those are Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, when did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Only those who do the will and the work of Christ. Only those who are increasing in holiness in their lives. Only those who display holiness in their lives will enter into the gate of eternity in the presence of God. We talk all the time about how we're saved from sin. We talk quite a bit here in this church about how we are also saved to good works. Not because those good works save us, but because we have been saved, we want to show God how much we love Him by doing good works, which includes sharing His gospel with other people. And today we are finding out that we are also saved to holiness, a way of thinking and living and loving that displays good works in all we do because of how Christ has loved us and all that he has accomplished for us. Today, we put before you the big picture of why this series is important. Be holy. So how do we put this into practice? Well, that's a choice that you have to make. Obedience is a pathway to holiness. The one sheet this week, and you can get that on your phone, on your computer, on your iPad. I encourage you, four simple things on there that will help you down this road of holiness. We can't go over everything today, but I want to give us a good start. I want us to go to 2 Peter chapter 1, and I want us to read. Because he just doesn't say, hey, I've given you everything, and then leave it at that. He tells us what the everything is. He gives us a step to take, and then another step to take. 2 Peter chapter three, or chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes this. Again, his divine, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Do you see it again right there? Something that God gives us, something we are called to do. Partakers in his divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 5, for this very reason, here's your steps this week. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, the only conquered sin the only sin that you can kill is a forgiven sin. Good news, that sin is the very sin that Jesus Christ died for on Calvary's cross. No matter how big, no matter how small, 
no matter whether that sin still drives you embarrassingly to your knees because you see it as a, as a, a lashing out against God or whether you're still carrying it around proud of it as you would your cute puppy. Jesus died for all sin giving his perfect life as the final sacrifice for your imperfect one. You gain that forgiveness by being sanctified in him. Today, if you have not bowed your knee, if you have not surrendered to this king, if you have not asked him to come and be in your heart, to change your life, to, make, uh, to clean up what you have messed up, if you have not accepted Jesus for salvation, I pray today is your day of justification. Today is a day that we celebrate because you are freed from the power, from the consequences of your sin. And you begin a life, a Christian life, that leads you into a deepening relationship with your Savior so that one day you can stand before your judge and hear those words, well done, come on in. And then you walk into eternity in the presence of your Savior. Oswald Chambers, and I leave you with this, wrote way back in 1899, God has one intended destiny for mankind, holiness. His only goal is to produce saints. God is not some eternal blessing machine for people to use at their whim. And he did not come to save us out of pity. He came to save us because he created us to be holy. It's a rough battle, but if you're in Jesus, you can be a victor. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory to win? There's wonderful power in the blood.